Just one more distraction for you parents. <laughs> You're welcome. As we prepare to read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord again in prayer, asking him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. We will be in Luke uh, through this next week. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is an excitement and a joy that is palpable in this passage as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Luke records this for us, much like the other gospel accounts. Luke tells us that Jesus, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, is riding a donkey colt. 
his followers spreading their cloaks on the road before him, breaking into songs of praise as he neared the city, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And although we can sense the exhilaration of this moment, it might be lost on us exactly what is happening here on why the crowds surrounding Jesus were elated by this event. But it certainly wasn't lost on those who were a part of this event or witnessing it. You see, everything here is pointing to one thing. Jesus's identity as the Messiah King who had been long awaited. Here was a man in whom they had witnessed God's power displayed. The deaf spoke, the blind saw, the lame walked, the lepers were cleansed, the demons were cast out, the dead were raised. The gospel was proclaimed. His ministry had been filled with miraculous works that they had attributed to the mighty works of God. And Jesus' inner circle had already declared him to be the Christ. And now this man, Jesus, was mounted on a donkey colt, which he had arranged and was with purpose riding into Jerusalem. The overtones are unmistakably regal. You see, an animal which had never been ridden or worked would have been seen as suitable to perform a sacred Tasks, say, carrying a king to his coronation. But a king riding a donkey was distinctive. Typically, a king rode a war horse, which displayed military might and power. Occasionally, a king would mount a donkey to reveal that he was a man of peace. For instance, a donkey might be ridden by a king as he returned home after conquering his enemies to reveal that he returned in peace. A donkey was a humble animal. And whether all of Jesus' followers that day drew this connection between Jesus as a man of peace and humility is not clear. They desired a Messiah, and they almost certainly understood Jesus' action of riding a donkey into Jerusalem to be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout Aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And what was this prophecy all about? It's about the Messiah King who will restore Jerusalem, bringing God's enemies into submission and ushering in a time of peace and prosperity for God's people. It is all about the Messiah King coming to bring salvation, riding on a donkey colt. To people who had been looking for a Messiah, they were seeing one in Jesus. He was showing himself to be the Messiah King that they had been hoping for. 
And perhaps the fact that he was coming into Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives is recognized by them to be messianic as well. From the 14th chapter of Zechariah, the Mount of Olives is associated with the coming of the Messiah at the end of time. The Messiah would be established over, as king over all the earth. And those who had been following Jesus now are recognizing his actions and are giving him an appropriate welcome. The king had come to take his throne in Jerusalem, so they were giving him a king's welcome, laying out their cloaks on the ground as Jesus rode into town. was like rolling out the red carpet into the capital city before him. Same treatment that Jehu got when he was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9. Immediately after Jehu was anointed, Scripture tells us, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And what are those who are described here as the whole multitude of Jesus' disciples doing? As Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, they're crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are declaring him to be king as they sing out Psalm 118. It's a psalm that's used to greet pilgrims into Jerusalem. But it was understood that one day the coming, the one coming in the name of the Lord would be the Messiah. He would be so it was thought the king leading pilgrims to the temple and receiving a greeting from the priests at the temple. This greeting recognized that the king and his entourage came as the Lord's approval, with the Lord's approval. So for the followers of Jesus, Jesus was not simply another pilgrim entering into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He was the Messiah king. And he should be welcomed as that leader and agent of God. Luke doesn't record that the crowds were also crying out Hosanna, which is crying out for God to save, and were referring to Jesus as the son of David. This is a messianic title given to the one who was from David's lineage and would fulfill the prophecy and promises made by God to David. Luke's audience would not have understood this language, so it's left out here, as were the palm branches. But all of these things paint a very clear picture and solidify what Jesus' followers understood to be happening here. Their language and their actions are heaping upon Jesus centuries of hope and expectation. They're filled with excitement and praise. And as the disciples of Jesus were rejoicing greatly as they praise God for his mighty works, we need to recognize that they are praising Jesus himself. They see him for who he is, the promised Messiah. He had been born of the divinic lineage, but he was not just the son of David. More importantly, he was the son of God, worthy of all of their praise. And now he was coming to Jerusalem as Israel's true king. This incident does not just support the revelation of who Jesus is as the Messiah king, but it's bringing it to its climax. 
This praise of Jesus was not unanimous, though. Luke's gospel records not only the excitement of this moment, the exhilaration of the crowd surrounding Jesus, Luke also presents us with a striking contrast, which is not found in the other gospels. Not everyone who witnessed this event shared the same view of who Jesus was. Not everyone present there was as enthusiastic and joyful at what was happening. Not everyone joined in the praise. We see this starting in verse 39 in Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees. In one verse, one verse, a dark storm cloud forms over the parade. Opposition to Jesus in Jerusalem begins to rain down and seekingly, seemingly soak the joy of the moment. An opposition that has been there all along, but it's an opposition in this moment where Jesus is so clearly being seen as the true king of Israel that betrays that not all of Israel had accepted their king. Look at how the Pharisees address him here. Teacher. Teacher. That's a title that everyone can get behind, right? Jesus is universally recognized as a great teacher. People love to quote Jesus' teachings. Judge not, lest you be judged. That one is a favorite. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's another. Let he who has no sin throw the first stone. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We could go on and on reciting Jesus' beloved teachings that people seem so enthusiastic to rehearse. People are astonished by Jesus' teachings. At least this is what Matthew's gospel tells us is the reaction by the crowds to the large section of Jesus' teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount. His teachings are beautiful. They're recognized for their wisdom. Well, at least some of them. It sounds so respectful to call Jesus teacher, doesn't it? But have you ever noticed how the world likes to quote Jesus' teachings even while denying who he really is and submitting to his authority? And the reality is that this is exactly what's going on here in Luke 19. The Pharisees addressing him as teacher is just a rejection of who he truly is. He isn't just a teacher. He is more than a teacher. He is the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the promised Messiah. Calling him teacher is a refusal to recognize his identity and bow before his majesty. And we see how the Pharisees really feel about Jesus and what follows. They demand that Jesus rebuke his disciples. The Pharisees have no hope of correcting this crowd of deplorables themselves, so they call on the leader. And why did they think that Jesus needed to rebuke his disciples? Because the Pharisees were enraged at how Jesus' followers were addressing him and approaching him. The regal overtones aren't lost on them. They recognized exactly what is being signaled here, and they don't like it one bit. They view it as entirely inappropriate. 
The reality is that those who reject the lordship of Jesus Christ find offensive any claim about him being king or messiah. Any worship or adoration directed to Jesus is not only obnoxious, but unacceptable and intolerable. It grates on their nerves. Look at these silly people. Look at them, these followers of Jesus, bowing before Jesus, laying out their cloaks before him like he's a king, ha, cheering for him, worshiping him as though he's God. They're so ignorant. Look at how backwards they are in their thinking. This is embarrassing. Jesus, tell them to stop this nonsense. The Pharisees are annoyed and concerned about these extremist views shared by the followers of Jesus, which are now being brought into Jerusalem. Unfortunately, this is not a reaction that will be unfamiliar to Jesus' followers through the ages. And we've seen the same reaction throughout history. There have been many places where Jesus has been publicly rejected and opposed and worship of him has been viewed as intolerable and outlawed. In places where communism has existed, where freedom of religion has been suppressed, in lands where false gods have been worshipped or demonic philosophies followed, Publicly announcing Jesus as King and Messiah and worshiping him is a dangerous thing. And most recently, we've seen it happening right here in our own country in widespread ways. Look at the places which have declared restrictions on congregational worship through this pandemic. The pandemic has exposed the downright annoyance at the desire of Christians to gather to worship and give honor and glory to King Jesus. And it hasn't just been a disregard for Christian worship and indifference to it. There has been an outright opposition to it. The mandates in California this past summer, for instance, stated that, and I quote, places of worship must discontinue singing and chanting activities and limit indoor attendance to 25% of building capacity or a maximum of 100 attendees, whichever is lower. Do you think that this was written to target Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus? Think about it. John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church, which is in California, has a weekly worship attendance of more than 8,300 people. They have a huge worship space, but California told them that they couldn't have more than 100 people at a worship service. And additionally, that they couldn't sing. This wasn't about putting reasonable precautions in place. We have had 100 or more people in worship here at Covenant throughout almost the entire pandemic without any reported cases of infection coming from our worship service. In a sanctuary that seats a small fraction of what Grace Community Sanctuary holds, and we have never stopped singing. Praise be to God. Any of you who are familiar with Johnny Mac know that he wasn't going to take these overly restrictive mandates sitting down. And when Grace Community Church defied these orders, claiming that they were unconstitutional, which they were as declared by the Supreme Court of the United States, the government of California came after him. MacArthur was threatened with arrest, 
He and the church face a $1,000 daily fine if the church did not cease and desist from worshiping Jesus. Jesus, tell your disciples to cut it out. Tell them to stop gathering for worship. Tell them to quit singing their jubilant songs like a bunch of drunkards and imbeciles. And when the city of Los Angeles began to recognize that their defeat was inevitable in court, they sent Grace Community a letter letting them know that they were evicting them from their parking lot lease, a lease that they had held without issue since 1975. Why? Why would they do such a thing? Because the worship of Jesus Christ creates great irritation. And when those who oppose it can't get their way at silencing the worship the first time, they're going to try harder. They're going to become vengeful and do everything they can to make life miserable. Grace Community wasn't the only church targeted either. Others were as well. Another church in California, for instance, was fined $10,000 for holding a Sunday morning and evening service. And this wasn't just about stopping the spread of COVID. Police officers in Canada prevented one church from having a drive-in worship service and issued them a $5,000 fine. Public health, of course, was the reason given for banning any and all attempts at public worship. It's dangerous for people to be gathered. Meanwhile, though, liquor stores were open, casinos were open, cannabis dispensaries open, Hollywood open, all the world holds near and dear and essential. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. How dare you Christians be so reckless with public health as to insist on gathering to worship Jesus. He isn't worth risking public health for because he isn't worth our worship at all. This is what's being said. And if you think that this sort of ridiculousness has been limited to places like California and Canada, think again. Same thing happened. Same thing that happened to that church in Canada happened right next door in Mississippi where churchgoers in Greenville were fined for attending a drive-in worship service. Drive-in. Car doors closed, windows rolled up, people sitting in their cars in a parking lot. Each of them received a $500 ticket. The pandemic provided the excuse, but the opposition was already there. The irritation was already there. The annoyance was already there. It's been there since the first century. Jesus, rebuke your disciples. How does Jesus reply? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. His response is a slap in the face to the Pharisees. Jesus tells them that they have been so blind that they are unable to see what the rest of creation can, what even inanimate objects know. All of creation recognizes who Jesus is and gives praise to him. The creation will not fail to obey their creator and give him glory. And from this two-verse exchange with the Pharisees, we are immediately taken to another scene where the excitement and joy of this triumphal entry gives way to sadness. Luke is the only gospel to record Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. The Pharisees have shown that even as there are many who recognize Jesus as the Messiah King, there remains great blindness in Israel. There are many who do not and will not 
recognized Jesus as the anointed one sent by God despite all of his ministry demonstrating this reality. And Jesus experiences deep sorrow over this rejection. His lament is like David's lament when Absalom, his own son, led a plot and revolted against him. David fled from Jerusalem and stood where? On the Mount of Olives and wept, as 2 Samuel 15 tells us. Sorrow here, Luke 19, is much akin to a parent's sorrow and watching a child make a foolish and harmful decision. It's the deep sorrow of a father whose son has risen up and rebelled against him. Jesus' weeping also recalls the prophets who declared destruction on Israel for their rebellion against God. The prophet Jeremiah, who is deeply grieved over the coming exile, he declares in Jeremiah 6, who a few chapters later cries out, is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is devastated for his people and their failure to repent and obey God. He's deeply grieved at the consequence of their rejection of God, the judgment of God that they now face. As he enters Jerusalem, Luke 19 reveals the profound heartbreak that Jesus experiences at Israel's failure to respond with faith to his coming. And even as we acknowledge this sad reality, nevertheless, we are glimpsing something that is simultaneously tragic and beautiful because it reveals the tender mercy of God, a God who seeks to save the lost. Jesus has come not to bring war, but to bring peace. He has come to heal. He has come to forgive. He has come to save. And thanks be to God, he didn't enter Jerusalem and go right to his throne, bypassing the cross. Rather, he willingly and joyfully submitted himself to this rejection of his people in order that salvation might come. He knew what was coming. This rejection caused him deep anguish, but it wasn't unexpected. And Jesus doesn't avoid it. He doesn't sneak into Jerusalem. He comes very publicly, directly confronting this rejection. It was all part of God's great sovereign plan of salvation to give himself over to his people's opposition and abuse, even to the point of death on a cross, crucifixion, in order that he might provide atonement for their sin and enable reconciliation, peace with God. Praise be to the Lord for his tender mercy. But that doesn't mean that there isn't any consequence to rejecting Jesus and his sacrifice for our sin. As Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, he foretells of Israel's coming judgment. As one commentator puts it, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem shows that the consequence of rejecting God's messenger is national judgment. When God sues for peace and his terms are rejected, only judgment remains. And the judgment is what Jesus speaks here as he predicts Israel's destruction for its failure to receive him as the Messiah King. It is no empty threat. 
His words would indeed become reality in AD 70 with the Hellenistic military siege that came upon Jerusalem, and the defeat was total. The city would be leveled and left for dead. The city and the temple were utterly destroyed. It was a disaster that recalled the judgment that befell the pagan nations when God acted against them and the judgment Israel experienced in going into exile centuries earlier. But this was different than previous judgment. Restoration of Israel as a nation was not in sight this time. Rather, a new Israel, the true Israel, would be established in Jesus Christ, and all those outside of him would be cut off. For Jesus had come to reign, not over one nation, but over the entire world. He was not coming to Jerusalem to make take his throne, but to carry his cross and to be crucified. And it was on the cross that sin would be judged and evil defeated. It was by way of his death that death would be destroyed. And it would be in his raising from the dead and ascending into heaven that he would be vindicated as the king and seated at God's right hand to reign as the true king of kings, establishing his rule across every nation to the ends of the earth. This is what the prophets foretold. But the point here in Luke 19 is clear. The cost of rejecting the Savior and holding on to our sin is great. And what is true of Israel as a nation is also true of all of us as individuals. To reject the visitation of God to earth in Jesus Christ and to fail to receive him as the promised Messiah is to face accountability to God. And it is a fearful thing indeed to be responsible before God for the rejection of Jesus Christ. We have seen God's wrath poured out on sin in Jesus Christ on the cross. We either receive his sacrifice as our savior and bow before him as our Lord or we face that wrath ourselves. This then is the day of decision. Jesus has been presented to us as the Messiah King and we're faced with some question, whose team are we on? Which response do we support? Do we recognize Jesus as King? Do we honor him, bow before him, worship him, submit to his rule, receive him as savior, as the one who willingly lays down his life by his tender mercy to provide atonement for our sins? Or do we reject him? Do we refuse to acknowledge him as Savior and decline his grace offered to us in his sacrifice on the cross? Do we refuse to acknowledge him as Lord and declare ourselves to be our own authority? Do we deny him the worship that he is due as God? There are only two options here. Accept him wholeheartedly and submit our lives to him or reject him. There is no neutral ground before his lordship. We're not given the liberty of indifference before Jesus Christ. Indifference to Jesus' rejection of him. It doesn't matter how politely you reject him. You can respect him as a teacher. You can look up to him as a wise or moral example. The fact remains, we are either among those submitting our lives to him and worshiping him as Lord and Savior, or we are among those who are rejecting him. And the consequences of our decision could not be greater. We will either be among those at the eternal Palm Sunday 
for which the apostle John was privileged to see and about which he writes in Revelation 7, where he states, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will either be there clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, palm in hand, crying out to our victorious, conquering king and worshiping him in God's everlasting kingdom of peace, joy, and righteousness, or our portion will be, as John says in Revelation 21, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. There are eternal consequences to our decision. So I pray that as we meditate on the passion of Jesus Christ this week, that we would run to the foot of the cross. And that there we would see and experience the tender mercy of our God which confronts our sin and deals with it. And that we would, in response, give ourselves to Jesus promptly and sincerely. I pray that we would choose Jesus over our sin and rebellion. I pray that we would choose life in God's eternal presence, worshiping him, rather than judgment that leads to damnation. And I also pray that this would be a moment for us who have, by God's grace, placed our faith in Jesus Christ to commit ourselves to worshiping him. No matter the opposition we face, unashamed, steadfast, undeterred by any insult or injury that is brought against us, and that we would allow our hearts to be broken for those who have not recognized Jesus as Lord and Savior, and that we would recommit ourselves to proclaiming the gospel that all may have an opportunity to hear and believe and be saved from God's coming wrath. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be as those who welcomed your son, Jesus Christ, into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Help us to recognize him as the anointed one, the Messiah, the one whom you have sent to save us from our sins and reconcile us back to you. We thank you for his sacrificial death that provides atonement for our sins and peace with you. Give us boldness to sing his praise. And break our hearts for those who do not recognize him as Messiah and worship him as God. And grant to us the courage to make your gospel known that all might come and be saved and worship you. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, 
In whom do you believe? I believe 